I'm Steve Stein, and this is Inside Asia. You may have heard the term impact investing bandied about. It means different things to different people, but in Asia, it's starting to build momentum and could prove just the thing needed to ignite a wave of micro-enterprises that solve local problems in sustainable ways. My guest this episode, Paul Myers, is uniquely equipped to discuss the growth of venture and impact investing in the region. He spent nearly 30 years operating in Asia, first as a filmmaker and then as a pioneer in the interactive and mobile space. He's a serial entrepreneur who in recent years has turned his attention to vetting, advertising, and funding startups from Indonesia to Bangladesh. Paul's CV reads like an Alice in Wonderland journey through the early years in what we then called the interactive movement. It's a mind-bending experience to explore all that Paul has witnessed. We first met in 1997. He sat behind a custom-built desktop terminal with plans to deliver cable TV news through high-speed networks. Real-time news at your fingertips. Can you imagine? It was a revolutionary idea at the time. Today, it's yesterday's news. But here's the point. Paul is a tech optimist, and rather than bemoaning his own journey of startup losses and near misses, he celebrates the rise of venture capital and impact investing specifically as the best solution to date to address the underserved needs of Asia's small businesses. Tracing the long arc of Paul's time in Asia is where we started. I came to Asia initially as a filmmaker and, and backed into venture capital um, in the early days of internet, internet 1.0. Um, I helped start an internet company that was four of us uh, that grew into 650 of us in two and a half years. I learned how to pitch. I learned how to uh, meet VCs and pitch to them and raised about $60 million uh, and do deals and then raise uh, uh, start companies uh, around Asia in six, seven different countries. Uh, we brought CNET to Asia, we brought MTV to Asia, we brought DoubleClick to Asia, a lot of companies like that and how we structured them and localized them. And then uh, ultimately went public on NASDAQ. Mm. And, and so all through all these experiences, a whole different set of circumstances, characters, financial arrangements, you've pretty much seen every type of structure imaginable, I, I, I suspect. Yes, I've seen a, a variety of deals. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, deals, deal structures, good deals, bad deals, good investors, yeah. bad investors. And, and for so long, uh, the venture capital ecosystem in Asia was largely underdeveloped. There was large private equity plays, the big players coming in kind of mezzanine financing for the large organizations, scaling, you know, combining a lot of uh, uh, companies together in different markets. But the VC community is particularly unique, and multiple attempts to try to replicate what Silicon Valley had failed year after year. Um, Singapore, for instance, I think has made a noble effort through the years to try to kind of develop develop a VC uh, environment, a VC culture. W tell us a little bit about that. I mean, how have they evolved and where is Singapore now as a VC center? Well, I think that when I started in the early days of the internet, there were really big corporate VCs. We, we looked uh, to Intel, we looked to Citibank, we looked to companies like that that had venture arms, uh, that had big ticket uh, investments uh, for factories, for fabrication, for cities, those kinds of things. Um, after inter the Internet 1.0 bubble burst, and this happened in the States as well, venture capital became something else and really started to focus on smaller companies and really kind of evolve into what we see now. It took a little longer than that, but that's how it, it arrived. In Singapore, 
when I had my next company, which was selling uh, mobile content across Southeast Asia, venture capital still hadn't evolved to this stage. It was still uh, looking for bigger plays, more traditional, um, not individual founders or founder teams with looking for half a million or one million dollars of those kinds of things. So now what we're seeing is uh, uh, a replica of what we see in Silicon Valley, in, in many instances, what we see in Israel, what we're seeing in other other kinds of markets where the government uh, has worked to adjust uh, laws, adjust uh, tax tax credits, tax financial incentives, um, put money behind uh, building a community uh, to make this work. And Singapore, to their credit, they spent a lot of money and they took a lot of time. It's been 10 or 12 years, but actually have gotten here now. And Singapore has a thriving venture uh, community at lots of different levels, whether they're early stage or mid stage startups, um, and are often looked at as the uh, uh, the real example for other countries in Southeast Asia. When you go to Indonesia or Philippines or Vietnam, the people there look at the Singapore structure and want to try to emulate it. So Singapore's done very well. Is this just an aspect of economic maturation as economies grow, evolve, become more complex? There becomes room for a venture capital community, uh, or could it exist in less developed markets in an equally or at least a, a relatively thriving fashion? I think the former was true, but what we're seeing now, and we're seeing it across Southeast Asia, uh, is that government is realizing that building a startup community, a startup function, uh, uh, an investor environment, a real ecosystem, a startup ecosystem is good for everybody. It's good for founders, it's good for the economy as a whole, it's good for schools, uh, it's good for job creation, it's good for wealth creation. So that even if a country is not on par with Singapore economically, they still see it as a good investment. And different countries have taken a different amount of time to be doing this, but we're starting to see it now across all of Southeast Asia. And, and of course, venture capital has also become kind of a, a Baskin-Robbins approach where there's multiple flavors and different structures and different sizes of funds and even niche funds around clean tech or, you know, more kind of fintech or other areas. So you're seeing these kind of carving up. And then, of course, there's the definitions around social enterprise and impact investing. Um, and there's nuances around both. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about impact investing and what that means. Could, could you just help us in your words define what impact investing is? Yes, I think uh, impact investing previously uh, had kind of a bad connotation. It was, it was sort of a euphemism for charity or investments that may or may not work but made you feel good. But now I think it's becoming clearer that you can uh, do well by doing good. That's really what the slogan for impact investing is. And um, a recent McKinsey study has shown that impact investing can be just as effective as, as, as traditional startup investing, that you get the same kind of returns uh, over a similar period of time, not not a double period of time. It used to be thought that uh, you needed to be much more patient to get returns on an impact investment, uh, maybe 10 or 12 years or something like that. But but no, more studies are showing that it can be similar returns over a sim similar time frame, which makes it an impact investment much more attractive to all kinds of investors. And that means traditional VCs, banks, PE, governments, et cetera. And is that because impact investing has actually shifted its definition of itself? Or is it because people start to look at impact investing as simply just um, a good thing to do that actually yields profits? 
let me answer that by defining what I think impact investing means because we haven't really done that yet. Um, to me, impact investing is investment in companies that have a positive social impact. And that doesn't mean it's a charity, but it does mean that maybe you can uh, invest in a company that uh, grows food more effectively or delivers food more effectively to the to the marketplace so that we're not losing 30% of food on the way to the market, okay? Or um, health-related technologies that are affordable and can really move the needle quickly. Or even access to banks or money and fintech. I mean, there are lots of different kinds of ways of looking at this, of investing in companies that actually positively impact large groups of people through a new technology or solving a local problem. And that's what I think it is. Does, does impact investing actually have a threshold? Like, are we talking about seed level or mezzanine? I mean, is there a certain quantum about how much goes in? Or it's basically just the nature of the investment and what it hopes to achieve in making that investment? To me, I think it's stage agnostic. But in reality, I think what we're seeing right now, impact investing, tends to be smaller amounts, uh, especially as we're talking about emerging markets in Asia, because uh, at, at a small city or a small town or a village level, you don't need large amounts of capital. Yeah. Okay, so I, I, I tend to see it as uh, seed or pre-seed stage right now to move the needle in Southeast Asia. Hopefully that will be tens of millions of dollars at some point, but right now I think we need to be concentrating at smaller amounts. Paul, you've, you've gotten around the region to some really interesting locations. I mean, the earliest or the, the, the most undeveloped parts of Asia. Can you tell us a little bit about some of your exposure and experience in those markets, uh, what you observed and what you feel is needed? Sure. Uh, I've been really fortunate in that I've gotten to travel extensively through uh, Southeast Asia and South Asia and, and, and recently to Kazakhstan and, and, and Armenia, which are n neither of those, but... Uh, Soon to be annexed into Asia. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, different podcast. Uh, well, <laughs> but what we're looking at, I think, uh, what I've been looking at is early stage companies in different levels of emerging markets. And it's been fascinating because to me... Um, a startup, a successful startup in this instance solves a local problem. It's a local solution to a local problem. So what works maybe on a farm in Indonesia may be different than what works on a farm in Mongolia because the different sets of problems, because of different governments and climates and land ownership issues. But uh, you are solving a local problem that you know about and that's what, where I think they can be successful. Rather than taking in models from outside, uh, from other countries, from the U.S. or from Europe or from other, you know, even other emerging markets and try to graft them onto to your country. So I think what we're seeing now and what always thrills me are great examples of people solving problems they know and that impacts them and their families. Uh, one example is I was just in uh, Port Moresby in Papua New Guinea and uh, this was a program with Seed Stars and with uh, uh, GSMA and DFAT from Australia. And they were uh, having a, a three-day acceleration program for early, early stage startups. And one of the startups was a woman who had a business that um, when you contacted her via your phone, she would slaughter a chicken and have one of her brothers 
deliver it to you. It was basically fresh chicken on demand, right? And that was solving a problem. And she was actually making money doing this. It was, you know, she knew what her balance sheet was. She knew what her profit and loss was. She knew that if she could uh, go from 50 eggs a month to 100 eggs a month with breakage and this and that and the other thing, she'd still make money. And uh, she was building a real business, simply delivering fresh chickens as opposed to more expensive frozen chickens that came from Australia or something like that. Or, Or people growing their own chickens and running the risk of having the fox eat them or whatever exactly exactly and this was um, by applying a little bit of now accessible technology a phone with a uh, you know a simple way to communicate with one another and a motorcycle boom you know you solve this problem Um, it wasn't a life threatening problem but it was something that builds a business and I really like that and and now she's going to equip the motorcycles with like mobile fryers so she'll get fried chicken when they arrive is what I heard actually what she was doing was she realized that if she could deliver the chickens with things to cook them with. So they'd be sliced onions and carrots and potatoes delivered with the chicken. Then the working women, uh, generally it was working women, could uh, more quickly provide dinner for their family. So, so it's a basic version of Blue Apron. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. All right. That's a great, that's a great example. And so therefore, uh, fundamentals of business uh, are a requirement in order for somebody to get funded for something like this. You were uh, saying earlier that across the region, even some of those fundamentals aren't in place. Could you, could you help us understand how, how basic is knowledge about small business ownership, basic accounting, foundations of good commerce? You know, what's your take after being out here in the region and watching the evolution in this part of the world? Sure. I think that while a lot of people now know about the entrepreneurial culture and startups. I think that the internet has helped everybody with that. And, and most governments are putting out the word and schools are putting out the word and everybody uses uh, some recent technology on their phone. Uh, the, and A, and B, understands what their local problem is that they're trying to solve, whether it's an education issue or uh, uh, helping to pay taxes or helping to get into a a school, something like that. Um, The problem and solution may be clear, but the actual business fundamentals may not be clear in the founders. And I've seen this across the region. It's not any particular country, although... Well, I've just seen it commonly. So the basic uh, ideas of profit profit and loss... uh, Uh, supply and demand, what marketing is, uh, how to acquire customers, how to do you extend credit, what does credit mean, how do you follow up on that. Those kinds of business fundamentals are not known. And so while companies are often, you have uh, generally young people in their 20s or around their 20s, a lot of ideas and a lot of energy and stars in their eyes, they don't know the fundamentals of business. And this is now an issue that I've been talking to other people about, and they're starting to see it as well. So groups like Seedstars are putting together programs that aren't business accelerators, but they're almost like pre-accelerator incubation business fundamental programs so that uh, founders understand how to work a business before they get into building a business. So so many people uh, assume that the barrier to growth of impact or any early stage uh, enterprise is capital, availability or access to money. Uh, micro lending, micro finance groups have come to come in to fill that gap. Um, you know, there's all local organizations that are like lending organizations set up by the community to give small loans to help um, farmers, for instance, you know, make it through until the harvest. Um, there's there's even banks that I think are prepared to give some basic loans. But so it's it's really what you're saying that the financing is important, but the more 
more important and more essential thing is the education on what it is and what it takes to run a good business? I think they're both components to unlocking this riddle here, okay? So you have basic business fundamental knowledge, okay? Um, you know, looking back on it, I wasn't taught that either. I learned that the hard way by starting a business and bumping my head repeatedly and, and, and running out of money repeatedly. Not everybody has that luxury, okay? Mm -hmm. But so business fundamentals is one part to it. Access to capital, obviously, is another one. Um, knowing how to take an idea and turn that into a company um, which are what accelerator programs do and maybe taking your company and uh, filing away all the rough and unnecessary bits and pieces so that you have the right kind of company that's also what accelerator programs can can help with those are all components uh, defining the, right, the audience defining the price point um, getting support from banks getting supports from governments all of those things are now pieces to this puzzle and they're they're starting to move that's the encouraging thing for me is four or five years ago you didn't see all of this happening now you're starting to see it with governments are are making programs uh to make it easier to invest in small companies uh universities are having outreach to non-university students but teaching people you know what what is a profit and loss statement how, uh, how how does money work those kinds of things why is this happening now and why is it taken so long is it the recognition that uh maybe governments haven't been doing as much as they could? Is it the failure of the charities and the NGOs to basically pass on these skills or do more instead of just providing money or services? Um, is it the fact that, you know, there's a lot of, uh, it's a political issue where if they don't create jobs uh, and they can't rely on entrepreneurship, uh, there's going to be unrest. What would you say? Yeah, another good question. I'm not sure what the answer is to that other than, um, it could be all of the above, mm. frankly. I, I think there is a recognition that maybe some of the NGO efforts, although they come from the right place and they're good people and good hearts and you know certainly good money, maybe not are creating the kinds of change that are necessary today. Mm. Um, I think that governments do recognize that job creation is huge and important to for lots of different reasons uh, uh, and that they, they can help with that. Uh, I think that the internet has helped immeasurably on lots of levels, either consciously or unconsciously. Everybody, well, most people now have access to all sorts of kinds of information that they didn't have 10 years ago. Uh, because of the internet, they can see examples of um, entrepreneurs, they can see examples of businesses, they consume businesses that are made by entrepreneurs. Uh, money works different ways. You can do internet banking now for people who've never been inside a bank. So I think that that's a big enabler. And maybe maybe that that's what we point to is the internet is the the catalyst for making all of those other things happen. Yeah. So it's more just organic. I mean, as access to information rises, people's ideas spur ideas. With those ideas, they then kind of go on and say, hey, I could do that if I only had a little bit of capital and a little instruction. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I think that... Um, the part, the pieces were there, but it needed something to bring it together. And I think time and the internet and just seeing it happen in other markets uh, was kind of the recipe. There's a, there's a feeling I get just looking across the region and seeing what's happening in the U.S. There's a bit of a slowdown, right? And there's the prospect of a recession in the next 12 to 18 months. And, of course, that has a knock-on effect. Um, and it doesn't stop people from needing and wanting jobs. And, therefore, if the jobs aren't coming from corporate or from government, where else are they going to come from? They have to be from communities. They have to be cottage industries. Uh, encouraging entrepreneurship now is probably more important than ever before. Would, would you think that that's a viable argument? And do 
Do you think governments are cotton on to that and are doing something uh, because of it? Yeah, totally. I, I I believe not only governments but investors as well. And I mean, you look at you look at Southeast Asia and venture venture funding. It was what, last year it was eleven billion dollars in technology company for venture funding, which is almost double what it was the previous year. So if we bring the the discussion back to Southeast Asia here, just in this region alone, with just seven hundred million people, right? There's a realization that there. Um, is a way to create jobs. There is a way to get food to the table. There is a way to um, maybe cut pollution. There is a way to maybe cut using pesticides. Uh, there is a way to bring health to communities. Um, so this is bringing it back to the the other kind of doing doing good by doing well. Um, you can do all of those kinds of things by starting new companies and creating jobs. And it, it, maybe it, it's that virtuous circle that we're looking for. This is Steve Stein, and you're listening to Inside Asia. When we return, a discussion about Southeast Asia's venture capital ecosystem. How has it evolved in recent decades, and what's still to be done in order to deliver much-needed capital to underdeveloped communities? Stay with us. Let's talk a little bit about the venture capital community. Um, you know, th- their uh, motivation is to, you know, um, maximize return on investment in the shortest period of time. And as you mentioned, as funds grow, the pressure is on to deliver higher returns even faster. So how do you break the back of that in such a way where you can uh, diversify venture capital so that they can get through or across the administrative costs of going after lower thresholds of investment in order to feed some of these wonderful opportunities. Because right now, you know, a VC, you know, a name brand VC, a minimum investment of five to $10 million is kind of the, you know, is as low as they can go. But you're talking about people needing maybe fifty to $100,000 or even less in some cases to really kind of mobilize or accelerate what they're doing. How do you fill that gap and will VCs be able to do it? Exactly. That's the question, and that's what I see a lot of. And when uh, you come to what went to a market like Papua New Guinea, or I was just in uh, Phnom Penh, or I was just in Yangon, where companies don't need a lot of money, they're looking for a hundred thousand dollars, fifty to a hundred thousand dollars to get off the ground. Where does that money come from? So traditional VCs generally are not looking there because. Um, like you said, they need they need to invest higher amounts to get higher returns. Okay, because in order for them to be successful, that's how that's how it works. Okay, fair enough. But then, how do we find investors who can invest at that level down? Some funds are specializing in that. There are some that are being set up that do do that solely. We're starting to see different groups. Um, traditionally known as NGOs, but maybe they're development banks like ADB, maybe they're uh, uh, the IFC from the World Bank, maybe it's UNDP, who are making funds available or enablers available to help these founders start their companies in emerging markets. Almost fund to fund, where they basically seed local investors so that they can work with entrepreneurs? Some are funds of funds, some are not. some banks and NGOs can't participate in a fund of funds because of how they're set up. Uh, but there are some fund of funds out there that I think can do this. Maybe some banks are starting to look at this as a way to invest in their community as well. Sometimes governments are supporting this as well. Uh, uh, what you've seen in Singapore it, uh, 
traditionally, not so much anymore, but governments backing uh, investments at a two to one or a three to one. Kind of, you you put in fifty thousand dollars, we'll put in the hundred fifty thousand dollars. So you anchor tenant, anchor tenant, uh, maybe not that much money, but using that mechanism to work. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of different ways of solving this. It's still kind of an issue. Uh, to be solved because that's that's issue number one is where does that first money come from As, assuming that you've solved the basic business knowledge and finding the local solution to the local problem assuming that those have been take checked those boxes have been ticked you know what what's next and first is finding that kind of money well how do you get the money to get started and then that next level which is even tougher in some cases you you are successful you have some traction you need to scale you need a hundred thousand dollars you need a hundred fifty thousand dollars that money is very hard to find right now in emerging markets in Asia and I imagine that's where most companies fall over they just uh, they can't scale and therefore they kind of get in this uh, um, margin gap where they can only break they, they have to literally hire more people or build a new facility or do something and that clearly takes capital you would think that's the role that the bank would play but again I guess the banking industry across developed Asia is still really immature and risk-averse right I don't think banks uh, really play that role too much anymore uh, anywhere yeah. you know <laughs> they take deposits and go home yeah yeah I don't I don't think uh, we're looking at it's a wonderful life anymore right uh, but what we we I, so where does that money come from? That's that's really the issue here. Yeah, yeah. And and is it government-backed lenders? Is it uh, government-backed investors? Is it private investors? Are they development banks? Are they uh, traditional NGOs? Unclear. Um, that still needs to be worked out. But it, nevertheless, Paul, it sounds quite vibrant. Again, looking back over your expanse, expanse of 30 years, you know, the, the, it sounds like things are percolating now and in recent years in a way that it hasn't been before, which, you know, lends itself to feel hopeful, like there will be solutions. And then, of course, the application of technologies and things like GoFundMe and other types of mechanisms, uh, local versions of that, which can, you know, help people feel ownership, co-ops, right? I mean, some, some of this is getting back to basics, isn't it, about, you know, how you built business in the beginning and maybe there's going back to some of those rules uh, to help the guiding principles on how you kind of grow a business in, in this this climate I totally agree and I think I think actually the door is open now to try all sorts of new new solutions and, and appropriate ones uh, culturally appropriate uh, solutions as well but Getting back to the original point here, yes, it's exciting. Um, I, I I see three, four, five hundred startups every year uh, in pitch events, and it's thrilling. I mean, some people don't like it, but I'm thrilled by it. I, I really I, I love the enthusiasm. I like the creativity. Uh, I like the stars in the eyes, uh, and I like just seeing how that needle can be moved. That people can actually be doing that and are trying to do it. You know, they're not being told by their parents or told by their schools to do it. They're actually doing it themselves. So that's pretty cool. Can, can you recount? I mean, from all of those pitches you've seen, is there one that stands out and says it really delights you and says, whether it was successful or was funded or not, something that just said, um, you know, this is, this is kind of the hope and aspiration of people in one market or the other? So here's one example. I, uh, I was fortunate enough to run an accelerator program called Murudi, which was uh, backed by Telstra, the Australian telco. And one of the companies that uh, we selected out of 500 applicants, one of the companies that we selected was from... Uh, Bangladesh, and they uh, are a company called ShopUp. And what they did was they saw a problem of um, 
generally women in villages in Bangladesh who made crafts and they were trying to sell them and they were trying to sell them online via Facebook. But they could only grow to a certain certain scale. They couldn't get enough money to hire more people to make the goods or buy more materials or market. Um, they could do one or the other, but they couldn't do all of the above. The other side of the, the equation was there were all of these banks that had microloans available but didn't know how to score uh, credit, credit risk, credit rating. So what this company did was they figured out a way to establish a credit rating algorithm so that uh, the lenders could feel comfortable lending to the women in the villages and give them microloans. So did they do that by sending people out into the field to vet the bid? How, how did they arrive at a scoring mechanism? So they um, invented a piece of software that they used to help the uh, merchants sell better on Facebook. And then they took the stats from that and the data from that and were able to use that to go to the banks to say, here, okay? So they, were, they had a business and the data from the business was able to drive this other part of the business. So they made money, the, uh, the, the merchants, the women who were making the crafts, they were able to expand and make more money. The banks were happy because they were able to deploy their loans. Win, 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 all across the circle. So it was lovely, I, and it was simple, and they were nice people, and it helped everybody. It was great, it was great to see this. Yeah, that's a great example. Paul, what are your hopes and aspirations for the direction that things are going right now? Uh, are there things that could get in the way or problems that could arise uh, that could scuttle uh, this recent movement and energy around uh, impact investing? Well, yeah, of course, there are always always potential problems here. And I'm, you know, I worry about I worry about climate change related issues a lot. You know, I don't think we're we as a race, as as me, as a family, whatever, we're fa- facing them realistically yet. You know, uh, a long drought, poisoning of water supplies or dwindling water supplies or uh, lack of food production, any of those kinds of things I think are really major. But... Yeah. Uh, so you're, you're talking about crisis or, or catastrophe that could basically sidetrack any yes. development where funds rush to solve that problem or address that crisis and therefore it takes uh, the emphasis off uh, focusing and backing entrepreneurs. Correct. Yeah. Like, wh- why worry small when you can worry big? Yeah. Good for you, Paul. <laughs> Spoken like a true yes. entrepreneur. Exactly. Yeah. Think, think of the big, biggest thing that can happen and go wrong. But I think that um, equally, we those problems can be solved on an incremental basis. And that's, I'm always an optimist. That's why I'm always starting companies. And that's why I want to try to help uh, younger entrepreneurs start companies as well. Because I think that there's an opportunity here to solve those problems locally first. And that's what has to happen here. I don't think a big government can come in and, and fix warming of the oceans or a food production. But yes, you can, you can start to solve a food production problem locally in your community uh, and make sure that people are fed and you can make money and, and also help other people doing that. That's, that's what I believe the model is. Yeah, so the age of self-reliance. Yeah, exactly. And now that we there are all these tools now available where as as you know, 5 years ago they weren't available in emerging markets. I think the the phone/computer/internet is a big driver of that, perhaps the catalyst, but also there's an awareness among people like ourselves that yes, we can help. We have knowledge that we can share, um that money is becoming more and more available both from private private and public sector. 
Uh, NGOs are starting to focus more on sustainable development. I mean, we all know about the sustainable development goals and a lot of uh, uh, donors and, and are, are starting to focus on specific goals that they want to support. Not all 18, but, you know, pick two or three and that they can actually focus on that. And a lot of... Uh, uh, entities are focusing on solving one or more of those problems. So now there's a focus, there's some money, there's some expertise, there's the way to share the information via the internet. Um, I think all of those are coming together and that's what makes me optimistic. Yeah. Mass collaboration. Yeah, mass collaboration, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And, and learning, maybe you don't have to make every mistake yourself like I did as an entrepreneur, or like it felt like I did, uh, you know, that you can learn from other people's experiences and, uh, and, and learn where uh, money is or learnings are or teachers are or access to uh, goods or how to build a robot cheaper or any of those kinds of things you can maybe find online now where you couldn't five, ten years ago. Mm. Paul, thank you so much for spending time with us. Uh, good luck in your future ventures and keep bringing those stories of startups in Asia back to us. Thanks, Steve. I uh, really enjoyed this. Let's do it again. That was my conversation with Paul Myers, startup maven, entrepreneur, investor, and advisor. Paul's time and energy has shifted in recent years to the question of how much money can be made to how much good can be done. He, like many of us, have concerns that tech startups are too focused on consumerism and not focused enough on sustainability. Enabling mom-and-pop operations across Asia to solve real community needs in efficient and sustainable ways is the new agenda. By waving the flag of impact investing, Paul and others hope to mobilize a new generation of entrepreneurs. According to a recent Global Impact Investing Network report, between 2007 and 2017, something in the range of 12 billion U.S. dollars were deployed in the name of impact investing. The vast majority came from development finance institutes, or DFIs, like the Asia Development Bank, the World Bank, and the IFC. About 8% came from private investors. What we've learned is that DFIs are well-intentioned, but oftentimes frustratingly bureaucratic. Getting capital deployed quickly and efficiently is not their forte. Private or venture money, on the other hand, is better focused, but the cost of dispersing and managing investments in the tens of thousands versus millions of dollars is a time-consuming process. Most VC firms can't afford the time, resources, or due diligence to generate the necessary high rate of returns. Filling that seed round sweet spot of anything in the range of $25,000 to $150,000 is where the need lies. How to reach the tens of thousands of businesses across Asia's less developed markets is as much a logistical as it is a philosophical question. How important is this to governments in the region? As Paul and I discussed, political stability in turbulent times is a central concern for burgeoning democracies in South and Southeast Asia. The days of depending on corporations to generate enough jobs and training to meet the demand are over. This is the era of the entrepreneur, and supporting local initiatives and cottage industries is not only good for communities and the economy, but a central ingredient in the march towards social justice and equality. That says to me there's a role for government, if only to create the right conditions and incentives for entrepreneurs, but also to introduce business basics to secondary school curriculums. As Paul mentions, the barrier to the rise of entrepreneurship in Asia has less to do with access to capital and more to do with lessons in business basics. Will impact investing withstand the test of time? That depends on how effectively governments, private investors, and NGOs collaborate to address the needs of the entrepreneurial class versus serving their own institutional interests. 
I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Inside Asia. What's your take on impact investing in Asia? Is it simply a new way of marketing private capital? Or is it a breakaway means of funding a new generation of conscientious small businesses? Let us know what you think by leaving a comment on the Inside Asia LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter page. Review and rate this episode wherever you download and listen to podcasts. Visit us and subscribe to Inside Asia on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. We have over 100 episodes to choose from, featuring in-depth conversations with some of the sharpest and most well-informed insiders in Asia. Is there a topic we haven't covered? Do let us know. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Thank you.